We are thankful for your love for us, O God, that is expressed supremely in the work of your Son, our Savior, Jesus. And as we gather now for this panel discussion, we ask your blessing on us. In Christ's name, amen. I'm going to invite Sam uh, Albury to join me up here with Connie Kubik and Stan Fowler. And uh, we're going to take a few minutes. There's a few questions that we're going to sit and chat about in front of you and um, talk about around this issue and hope that this will be helpful. Um, I'm going to have Sam, you've met. Um, I've introduced myself this morning, but I'm going to have uh, Stan and Connie introduce themselves to you to start with. I'm Stan Fowler. I'm a sociology at Seminary in Cambridge. Makes me a Cambridge professor. I have heard you introduce yourself a number of times. I've never heard that. That was good. Well, I use it when I can. Yeah, that's good. I am nothing so distinguished. My name is Conan Kublik. I am the founding and senior pastor of New City Church in downtown Hamilton. All right. And you guys have a bit of an entourage here today, so that's exciting. Um, uh, we're going to take a few minutes to just kind of launch into a few questions and some that have come in and some that we've talked about. And I'm going to start with the first one. And you guys are free to just whoever wants to start can start, but is this a topic where Christians and churches can work together and agree to disagree? Some are now saying this is a disputable matter and it should fall into the same category. What, what do you guys think? I'll suggest uh, no. Even though the, there are people who, who clearly, um, apparently with all sincerity, want to affirm that scripture properly interpreted in its historical and social context and so on would be affirming of faithful same-sex unions. Um, they affirm the saving death and resurrection of Christ and so on, and yet they, they believe um, that, that we should affirm faithful same-sex unions. And so there's a part of me, therefore, that, that feels a tug towards saying this is a serious disagreement, but maybe we can still work together. The difficulty is, it, I mean, in Paul's words in 1 Corinthians 6, it's, this is a kingdom-excluding kind of thing. So there's a level of seriousness about um, error on this point uh, that it seems to me has to be pointed out, and that probably means we have to say, we love you, and we're all on a journey trying to grow in understanding together, but this is too serious to work together well. Is it on? Or, oh yes, well done me. Um, I normally break technology. I have some EMP that just radiates from me and short circuits things. So I fully agree with all of that. And I think in addition for me, I've got friends who've landed in different places on this issue, and it's, it's painful. Um, but I, one of the things I, I'm convinced of is that you, you cannot make the Bible support same-sex relationships without butchering your view of the authority of Scripture. You just have to go against the grain of too many key things in the Bible. So I've had to say to one or two friends, because of your view on this, I wouldn't have you in my church to preach on anything because I just don't trust you to handle the Bible. So I'm not doubting the sincerity of their, their belief, as you say, but in my mind, that, that's a kind of, 
you've so loosened your relationship to the authority of Scripture to get to that point that I, I wouldn't trust you to handle the Bible on any issue. How, how has that gone over? It's, it, that's a tough conversation. It, um, I don't think that necessarily ends a friendship, but it puts a strain on it. But I think it's a necessary position to take, and as we've been reminded, it's a, it's a salvation issue, uh, which, which is not the case with lots of other issues where we do disagree in good conscience and can work together. Um, any number of issues. You're a, you're a Baptist, last time I checked. Um, <laughs> I, I've been working on him at times. I, oh, yeah, we're two for two up here. Yeah, yeah. So, but that's, that, that's not a barrier to us working together and, and fellowshipping in Christ, doing ministry together. Um, it's a different order of disagreement. Connor? Yeah, I think the only thing I would add to that, and I mean, you know, it's something Sam pointed out this morning, is we can disagree about how to take these biblical things and, and affirm Scripture. And then how do we work this out now? And, and sometimes, you know, someone could go and do something and engage in this and someone's conscience would be there. And I think we need to keep sharpening one another on, on those while we're saying, no, Scripture is clear on, on these things. And now let's help each other implement this well, love well, uh, lead people and point people to Christ well in doing this. So part of our angst there is that churches move to an affirming place. Uh, which is where we would say we don't want to move. So how do we be welcoming without being affirming? What does that look like in our churches? I, this may be oversimplistic, but um, when Jesus says, if anyone must come after me, he, he must deny himself and take up his cross, I take it Jesus is non-affirming of all of us, uh, yet welcoming of all of us. And that's the posture we need to have to any, any sinner who walks into the church. We, we don't affirm the expressions of their sinful nature, but we affirm someone who's made in the image of God, someone who is worthy of, of our gospel witness and our, our welcome. But we've, in our culture, we've made a massive distinction now between... Well, we've assumed that you can't love someone unless you're affirming them which is, I've heard Rosario Butterfield say, is saying that every parent is abusive. Because every parent knows you, you for the sake of loving your child, you have to not affirm certain things that they, they do and say. It's, it's, um, it's a terrible way of thinking, actually. Others, Conan, Stan? Yeah, I mean, I think this is where the, the Christian practice of hospitality really begins to come to bear. I mean, it starts with the gospel. While we were outsiders, while we were enemies of God, sinners, Christ loved us, came to us, and invites us in, makes us clean. So, I mean, I think we need to uh, wisely begin implementing that love, um, invite in, while at the same time, I mean, we're, we're calling every one of us, you know, ourselves included, to a deep repentance and a deep faith in, in Christ. So, yeah. Oh, that's great. I'm, I'm 100% in support of the, the principial statement about being welcoming but not affirming. Within the church, though, I think we, we need to recognize that in experience. Um, it's relatively easy to be welcoming and hospitable to the gay couple who come to visit our church. 
for the first time, and maybe for the first few times. Over time, though, as if they become regulars, um, there's a sense in which functionally they become members of, of that parish, though, though not technically. And, and it certainly does pose its challenges in terms of how we, we continue to welcome them week after week and month after month, somehow in spite of this very serious difference. And I, I mean, I, I'm not saying we don't need to find ways to do it, but, it, but we need to recognize, I think, the significant challenge of it. So for example, if I remember a couple years back, one of my former students, uh, pastor of a church in Ottawa, uh, was talking in that case about, about a, a man, woman with gender dysphoria who wanted to be, had come back to that church, wanted to be part of the church, wanted to be part of a small group. And he said, I mean, how do we do this? Do we just toss them into a small group? I suggested you, you probably need to find an appropriate small group where you have the right kind of people to be welcoming but not affirming. And that's a challenge. And that, that kind of leads right into our next question. So if, if our churches, if, um, we have an elder at our church. We've been talking about brokenness and wholeness at our church. And in doing so, we've talked about how too often we've celebrated brokenness. What we should be celebrating is God welcomes us as broken people and brings us to a place of wholeness. And in that, there's, there's some transition that can happen. So if we are churches that move to a place of welcoming the LGBTQ community in and loving on them in that way, um, how do we navigate what Stan's just talking about right now, levels of involvement, especially if they're still, um, if they're not remaining celibate, how do, how do we navigate um, what being a part of our communities look like and yet continue to direct them and point them to Jesus Christ and love on them in his name? You're, you're, asking, you're asking the question that uh, relates to what Tim Keller says in Center Church about the church being porous in, in certain ways. And, and welcoming people who are not yet disciples of Jesus into as many parts of the life of the church as you can. And so if they want to be involved in um, local ministries of mercy, uh, that kind of thing, it's not so hard to do that. Uh, we certainly welcome them to be there for corporate worship. Um, we'd like to find an appropriate small group for them to, to be a part of, and yet if we're serious about this issue, we have to draw lines at uh, teaching within the church, I think, uh, providing maybe at the level of providing leadership to some of those ministries of mercy even. Um, somehow we have to say, yeah, you're welcome, and yet there's a sense in which you are a part of us and a sense in which you're not a part of us. And as Sam said this morning, that life in this area is about being awkward. And, and being able to talk to people in ways that say, gives me great pain to put it this way, but we do have to draw some lines. Agree. And, and I think just adding to that then, and you know, something we talked about briefly before, is being consistent. This is not the only issue we need to do that on. Mm. Um, you know, when Paul gives the list in, in homosexuality or sexual sin is in it, it's embedded with a whole lot of other things. So, I mean, I think it's also really working and going, how do we, you know, humbly, wisely be consistent in, in calling people uh, to be followers of Jesus and to leave sin behind in this too. And that, 
there's times I think we're also going to have to acknowledge that I don't think we did that well. We need to back up and apologize and go, how do we do this better the next time? Some, some people, I'm going to transition to the next question, but some people use the language gay Christian, others more same-sex attraction. When you hear language, what language is most helpful and why? What, what language do you think we should be using? Language is, is tricky because it, it varies from place to place and even from generation to generation. So it's hard to keep track of every aspect of what certain words mean everywhere. But I think in one, one principle is that we... One of the great things about being a Christian is that not everything that could describe you defines you. Our, def our definition comes, we've just been singing it, it's who I am, someone who is loved by God. So my identity is to be found in being someone who is created and redeemed by God as someone who is in Christ. So I want to avoid language that, that implies that sexual feelings are the, the kind of centre of who I am as a person. And certainly my experience has been that the word gay tends to have more of that kind of association. Um, it tends to be a, it's, this is who I am rather than this describes my sexual feelings, which is why I've, I've not been comfortable to use it. I think maybe three times in my life I have, if I'm, I've, I was being interviewed by the BBC back in the UK and I knew that they would not understand the language of same-sex attraction. So I, I used the language of gay then, but immediately tried to explain what that did mean and what that didn't mean. And from, from that point of view, this may be an imperfect parallel, but I, I sort of felt that was a bit like Paul appealing to his Roman citizenship. Okay. I'm happy to yep. appeal to that language in order to open the door for, a gospel, for the gospel. But nowhere does Paul introduce himself in a letter by saying, Paul, a Roman Christian because that's not who he is. It's a descriptor of an aspect of his life, but it doesn't get close to what makes Paul, Paul. Yeah, no, that's good. And it's very much a live question for our day with Wesley Hill, for example, on the one side, Rosario Butterfield and you, I guess, on the other side, essentially. Um, we talked about this recently in my moral theology course. And I mean, I'd, I'd share Sam's perspective on it. But, and I think we ought to recognize, as he did, though, that there may be contexts in which the phrase gay Christian could be appropriately used. Just because we recognize to whom we're speaking, what's going on in this situation, lack of time to, to explain all the nuances. Um, but Generally, it does seem to say that's very much who I am and, uh, and that is such a central part of me that I want to emphasize that. And I think for, for the average person out there, if I were to say I'm a gay Christian, they would assume I affirm that practice. So, I mean, communication is always about asking um, where am I now and, and who are these people to whom I'm trying to communicate? Um, so I, on that one, I mean, I think we need to recognize, I understand why people would come down on either side of that one, but, but it would cause me great concern to, to simply brandish the phrase gay Christian generally. Okay, Conan? 
No, that's good. So my wife and I have experienced this next one is, is sometimes when you're with other believers, you know, you're having this conversation. And because this is now personal, it's someone's son, it's someone's uncle, it's someone's brother, it's their own struggle. When you're trying to talk the way we're talking right now, when you're trying to say that, you know, we're going to be welcoming without being affirming. We think this is outside of, of um, the grounds in, in, which, in which in terms of biblical authority, in terms of what Christ has called us to, it can become an incredibly explosive conversation. How do you start to navigate those conversations? How do we wisely and biblically walk with people where, other, and here we're talking about brothers and sisters in Christ, where the disagreement is really strong because it's tied to something so personal? I think with a lot of these issues, it's, it's good to assume, even if we don't know for sure, that it will be a personal issue. Mm. Rather, one of the things I, I experienced as I, before I started to open up about this issue was that the number of people when I started to open up to friends about these battles, the number of mature Christian friends who had to apologize for language they had used was telling. If we just assume we're always in earshot of someone for whom this is personal, we're more likely to use appropriate language and less likely to use inappropriate language. So we mustn't be flippant. Uh, there's no place for gay jokes. Uh, let's assume someone who's wrestling with this for whom it's, it's a, a cause of pain, let's assume they're always in earshot, even if we don't have any reason to think they would be. It's just, I think, biblical wisdom about how we speak generally is assuming the, the personal issue we're talking about is a face in front of us. It's not easy, <laughs> but we, we need to, I, I suppose it's another uh, situation in which we need to uh, always, always remember, well, we're helping people understand that sexual sin is not unforgivable. It's not somehow the worst of all sins. Um, and so if we're talking about our perspective, biblically grounded perspective on particular kinds of sinful activity, um, there's nothing unique about this one. And um, we all need to talk about those things somehow, but it, but it really can be difficult. I, I think um, I remember a few months back in the life group that my wife and I are a part of. For whatever reasons, conversation questions kept being directed my way about the, this issue, and I really didn't want to dominate the whole discussion on that issue. But they were asking questions, and I was trying to be honest in answering them. And I think that drove one couple out of our life group because within their extended family, uh, there are people in the LGBTQ community and, and they're having a hard time affirming mm -hmm. what I consider biblical, the traditional Christian sexual morality. So it's, it's never without pain and it's never without the need for nuances. I think the one thing I would add, I may agree with all that, it's uh, I think we need to really become people of prayer. I mean, the day is past where the church is called to be just say your prayers. We need to get back to being prayerful people. And what that begins to do is it leads us to a deep compassion because I'm a lot more broken over my own sin mm -hmm. and the deep ripple effects it has in the lives of others. 
and that begins to be, give me a lot more compassion with the person who's struggling it with personally or someone who's struggling it because they know somebody who's struggling personally with this sin or something else. And you know, when, when I am someone on my knees and broken over my sin and getting real with Jesus and myself about that, um, it, it changes my heart attitude towards people. And not just as a pastor, I think just as a Christian. So. That's good. Um, we talked about this upstairs in the room a bit, but sometimes when you're engaging with friends who are LGBTQ, um, they want to just engage on that issue. In fact, I remember uh, one of my closest friends is gay, and um, he always he loves to host and facilitate and have parties. So I was at his place uh, in Vancouver a few years ago. It's Remembrance Day, and so he was having a big party because Remembrance Day is a holiday. I was there to speak, and um, I'm talking to a bunch of his friends, but I'm kind of on the barbecue, and he's doing stuff and we're, we're talking and at one point you know all his friends are wanting to talk about God and life and about what I think about this and he hollers out from the kitchen he says Dwayne tell them what you think about this what does the Bible say the Bible says that you think that all of us should be stoned and one of his friends says I think we should all be stoned too like that's a great thing right <laughs> and uh, this, is, this is really happening in my life that communication and, uh, context again and I'm like I'm like to him I'm like oh man come on how do you because I want to bring the conversation back to Jesus but so often uh, even as I'm conversing with friends in that community they want to talk about well there's these seven passages in the Bible there's this this because they have some knowledge of it so as that occurs how do we how do we engage in that conversation how do we how do we talk to people how do we love on people in the LGBT commu community and not ignore that that's a conversation we need to have but not make it the focal point I can't resist starting by uh, responding to what you just said, recalling a uh, Facebook post from a, a friend of mine who's a retired seminary professor who said he was trying to figure out if there's a connection between the contemporary trends toward affirming uh, homosexual activity and affirming marijuana. And he said, it's like Leviticus says, if two men have sex, they should be stoned. Um, <laughs> A lot of things are said on Facebook that probably are best left unsaid. Now, back to the question. Sam, that was a great sigh, by the way, after that. That was a, that was a great moment of looking at Stan. Actually, Facebook are listening anyway, so as we, as we, as we know. So hi, Mark. Um, someone posted, I love, this is the times I love the internet. Uh, but all this stuff about Facebook broke recently. So someone put an advert on advertising the job at Facebook position, qualifications required, no need to send your resume, we already have your information. <laughs> um, I think in answer to what you were saying, I'd, I'd go back to my earlier principle, don't say to someone what you can't say to everyone. And so sometimes when someone puts you in that position of, do you think this is a sin, yes or no? I had someone come up to me and say, are gay people going to hell, yes or no? My initial response is to say, I'll answer that question if, if we can have a coffee, because it's, you know, people deserve more than a one-word answer. This issue is about people, we need more than one word. But sometimes it, I find it just helps to say, do you know what, if there's no hope for gay people, there's no hope for anyone. Because it just reminds us our hope is all in the same place. And that, that immediately universalizes the issue it stops, it stops that issue somehow being one that is especially deserving of judgment more than anything else and, and all the rest of it. So I try to democratize the, the issue as much as I can. Because that way, 
you know, I was brought up being told if you point your finger at someone, you've got three fingers pointing back at yourself. It's true theologically, so I kind of keep wanting to, it's always good to answer these ways with theological self-deprecation. And so this is, this is how the gospel lands on me. And I'm more concerned about where I am with God and my sin. That's my biggest burden. I, God, God wants me to be responsible for my sin, not for your sin. And the Spirit is not... The Spirit wants to convict us of our own sin. The trouble is we want the Spirit to convict us of everybody else's sin. So I love it when Paul says in First uh, Timothy 2... Um, <laughs> one Timothy in the Bible. Uh, he says, Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the worst. And I don't think Paul had a survey done of the whole first century church to find out who was the most sinful and turns out it was him. You know, it had to be someone. I think what Paul is saying is when you, when you know yourself, you can't believe there is someone out there who is more messed up in their heart than you are. So it's good, to, it's good to just bring the issue, whatever it is, back to home with us and say, well, I'm lost without Christ and this is, we're all in the same boat here. It's clear that the, the apostles, uh, Peter and First Peter, Paul and Titus, for example, call us to be humble and respectful toward the, the unbelieving world around us. Um, I think Paul's words in Titus 3 are really powerful about being, being humble and kind and ready to do for every kind of good deed for, to the wider, within the wider pagan culture, um, remembering that we too were once foolish and God acted toward us in grace. And we're called to be godly in that way. And so humility um, sometimes will mean saying to someone, I understand why people would question this part of biblical teaching, and I know that there are other people who would even dis who disagree with me, and they think the, the Bible properly interpreted doesn't go down that road. I understand that, but if we have time to talk over coffee rather than just a one-word answer, I, I help you try to help you understand why it is. Um, in spite of those other voices, I still think the Bible currently points us in this direction. Um, so a, a, a bit of humility goes a long way, I think, toward carrying on that conversation and sometimes simply admitting. I, yes, I admit, they're among professed Christians. There are differences of opinion on this. No point in denying that reality. Mm. But here's why I think the evidence goes where it does. Something that I just experienced you know, experienced as you're talking with people about this, and you know, a lot of my immediate neighbors uh, are gay, uh, gay married. It's it's a, a live issue in in my my week, and um, but, but one of the things that I just I, I keep coming back to is that to really listen. There's a lot of pain sometimes in their asking the question, and for some of them, they're angry and they're just angry. Um, but for many, that, that, that anger uh, and where that question is coming from, there's been a lot of pain. There's been a lot of conversations. There's been a lot of rejection that's gone along with that. Mm -hmm. And it's really beginning to, to sit down and ask, get into relationship. You know, sometimes you only have a very short amount of time. Uh, other times, you know, I have years now with some of these guys. And to really listen to their story and, and the pain that goes along, because then it allows me then to not only answer just that question, 
but to begin to present Christ as something more beautiful and, you know, something that I, I wouldn't know how to, to interject that in a wise way, in a, in a humble way necessarily before that, but, you know, beginning to really probe and, and find out about their life and, and where they're at in this, in this story as well, because sometimes the, the question is hiding some other questions as well. In my experience, the people in the LGBTQ+, plus, what, however many letters there are in the acronym, are, they're, they're often more willing to uh, talk honestly about this than, than we, we think. Um, you know, my gay neighbor is, is not necessarily like the most vocal public gay activists. But even among the activists, they're often open. I, my, my first encounter, really, with the issue was in 1975, when I was a pastor in Bloomington, Indiana. Mm. Bloomington, for a variety of reasons, was a bit of a hotbed of gay activism. And our city was one of the first in the USA to add sexual orientation to the local human rights code. Getting involved in those public discussions brought me into contact with the Bloomington Gay Alliance leaders. And in one conversation with the president of the Bloomington Gay Alliance, he, he said to me, would, would you be willing to lead a Bible study group for members of the Alliance? And I said, um, don't you understand that, that I can't with a clear conscience based on my understanding of God's revelation in scripture affirm a gay lifestyle? He said, I know, we disagree on that. But we have, we have a lot of people in the alliance from evangelical backgrounds. And so I think it'd be great to have a Bible study for them. I, now at the time, I was, what, 30 years old, first pastorate. The, the board members of the church already were concerned that I hobnobbed with Pentecostals. So, <laughs> so I'm thinking, wow, I can hardly wait for that conversation to occur at, at the board meeting. Now, it, it, it never actually got as far as a formal offer, but, but he brought it up in conversation, and, and I mean, that's, it's awkward and strange, and I hardly knew how to respond, but um, if we treat them as fellow human beings made in the image of God, uh, we can take the conversation down some fruitful roads, I think. There was a study done recently, and I can't remember the exact numbers, but it was... Um it indicated that within the LGBT community, within those, among those who had left the church at some point, something like 70 or 80% would be interested in, in being invited back. So there's often massive spiritual interest in the LGBT community. That's been my experience, certainly. We tend to assume everyone is a certain type of activist and we have our own stereotype of what that must mean and entail, and um, the truth is always far more nuanced. A lot of people are, are in that community precisely because they're looking for deeper answers to life. I'm gonna transition to another question, but how do we, uh, this isn't a question we talked about, it's in my head. Um, uh, you, you, oh we, dear. Here we go. Um, we, we've talked a bit about narrative, and it just, it just came up again now. How are some of the ways that we can tell the healthy narrative? How do we, I mean, Jesus used narrative all the time. It's probably a whole portion of scripture is narrative, right? It's how God chose to reveal his word to us. How, how do we 
take the narrative of what God is doing and and allow that to be used of him in the lives of people around him. Because I agree with you, Matthew Vine's book, it's the narrative. There's no question, but that's what, that's what captures people. He's gonna, not to ignore what he's saying on the other part, but it's the narrative. So how do we, how do we take narrative and allow it to be healthy? I think for, for me, I, I keep coming back to this. This may be a post-truth type thing, the context we're in to some extent. I don't think many people care that the gospel is true if they don't think it's good. Mm. So I think, is it, you'll know this because you, you're clever, but um, was, it, <laughs> was it Pascal who said, first make someone wish it was true and then show them that it is true? Did I make that up? Maybe, but but sounds good though. People are googling it right now to find out. They're out there right now. I'm sure I've Mike Molesky might be doing that. I've, I've heard. Yeah, I think let's blame Keller if it's wrong. But um, but I, I like that principle, and I think that the context we're in now, people don't always care if their worldview is inconsistent. It just seems right, and so I think when it comes to this issue, as with any issue, I'm thinking, taste and see that the Lord is good. Mm. So let's show how the gospel puts people back together. It doesn't always have to be stories about this issue. It can be how a marriage was saved, how a, a porn addiction was overcome, how some other entirely unrelated type of mess. God is, God is a God who specializes in sorting out mess. And that will, it, it doesn't always have to directly be talking about this issue to, to be compelling. Um, it just, actually, over time, it just creates a culture. Actually, it helps us as Christians as well to keep remembering, yeah, it's okay that I'm still a bit of a mess. That's, that's par for the course. If, if our churches are kind of real about that, and it's not just the story of, I was a non-Christian and everything was bad, and now I'm a Christian and everything is shiny, but actually, this is how God is with me through the muck of life. We will begin to attract people who already know life is mucky and messy and it will protect us from the kind of the hypocrisy we drift into so quickly in church culture where we think i've got to look good to make jesus look good rather than i've got to show that i'm weak to show people that jesus is is everything i need amen stan connor Right. No, I think, I, I mean, I, I really appreciated uh, what Sam said this morning about narrative, about stories, and I appreciate what you just said about the fact that it's, we aren't just talking here about ex-gay stories. We're, we're talking about diverse manifestations of the fact that God's commands are designed for human flourishing, for human good. Uh, that's a powerful truth, I think, that we, we often miss. Uh, I think Proverbs 3, 1 to 12 is a section where you have six pairs of verses, each of which is making that basic point. God's commands are for our good. We don't just obey God because we're self-seeking. Well, if Christian, if Christian hedonism is an appropriate phrase, maybe we do, but... Um, but it's at least true that God's commands are not designed to make our lives narrow and cramped. They're designed to free us and promote our flourishing. I think as well there's, there's, a, there's an individual, personal, conversational component to this. So if we're talking to someone, a neighbor, a friend, whatever it might be, about issues of, of sexuality, 
and it's not an issue for us personally, that doesn't mean we can't share a narrative. We, we certainly have a narrative of what it means to be sexually broken. Mm -hmm. But also we may have our own equivalent narrative of this was the thing that my life was about, focused on, centered on, and I've had to learn through God's grace to reorient my life around Christ rather than this other thing, whatever that other thing might be. And yet this is how it's been so good for me to do that. Something that just sets up the category of this may be your entire identity now and it may be agonizing to have to yield that to Christ, but as we, this is what I love about the gospel, I don't know how God pulls this off, but it's as we deny self, we don't then cease to be ourselves. We, the more we deny self in the way that Jesus calls us to, the more we become the real self we were always made to be. It's as we lose life that we gain life. I don't know how that works, I just know that it does. And so again, we can set up these kind of narrative frameworks so that people can begin to see, actually, if I did dive in to the gospel, I can see how that would play out for me too. And I think this is where we need to also talk about the real issues going on in, our, in ourselves, in our own hearts as well, because it's not just like, okay, well, you know, I was angry once two years ago at the dog, you know, I think we need to get to the, no, I, ha I have real issues that are going on in my life, and this is how the gospel is working itself out and redeeming me, because I'm actually having to throw myself on the grace of God, just as Jesus is calling you to do. So, I mean, I think it's uh, recognizing the gospel actually is the safest place in the world to be, that we can confess real things. I mean, I think in appropriate ways, of course, but yeah. Um, that we can actually confess is like, you know what, I'm already taken care of <laughs> in this, so I actually can be real with this person and invite them in. And what that actually happens is there becomes to be a, an intimacy and a deeper friendship in doing so, um, and then pointing them full barrel. This is Christ who is, who is doing this in my, in my life, and I'm not there yet, but one day. Let me, let me piggyback on that, and I'll get to the last question, but... Um, one of the things I've said in various forms, specifically men's forms that I speak in, is men can talk about almost any issue except this one, right? Because admitting this one, when, when all of a sudden you're in your small group with men and you're like, hey, you know, man, really struggle with lying, and I lied to my wife about finances, and I've been looking at porn, and, you know, guys praying. And I like to talk about accessibility. I got that from Nate Larkin over and against accountability. Um, and then the guy is there saying, hey, guys, I struggle with same-sex attraction you know, half the chairs in the room kind of move back a little bit, right? Because no one knows what to do with that. Like, it, people are confused, and automatically people might think, well, does he like me? And, like, there's all kinds of confusion. How, how do we, in our churches, make this a place where a woman or a man can talk about same-sex attraction and, and people come to the point where they realize that's just as broken as I am in this area? Two, two immediate things. One is it is just a type of what is the case for all of us. So it's not an, an entirely separate species of right. temptation and sin. It's just it's one person's version of what is the case for everyone anyway. So if we're thinking, oh, that's a really bad one, again, there's a sense we haven't understood the grace of God in our own lives. But secondly, not to assume that anyone who could be attracted to me therefore must be is a pretty good place to start. <laughs> that so was great. Someone who is attracted to men doesn't mean they're attracted to all men everywhere and it's a little peculiar kind of arrogance to presume 
Okay. So but, am I a stumbling block then, just by existing in your field of vision kind of thing? But you know what I'm like, men who, who aren't attracted to men often think that, that if a guy, yeah. right? So I agree, that's, that's, we laugh, but that's a great word to hear, to take with us. But somehow they recognize that not all of womankind is attracted to them either, so it, hey. it's not. <laughs> not, not all of them, no. Okay, that's true. <laughs> Duane, I think at, at the heart of it all probably is um, pastoral leadership in the church needs mm -hmm. to set the example of being willing to talk about the topic. I mean, I, I can remember a few times, years, maybe deca decades ago in pastoral ministry, um, let's say I'm preaching through 1 Corinthians and chapter 7 is there. So I talk about the first few verses of the chapter. They talk about husbands and wives surrendering their authority over their own body when they marry and talk about sex. Some people found it astonishing, you know, that he actually said the word. He said the three-letter word out loud. So, but, but if leadership can, can lead the way, I think you can begin to create a climate where people say, okay, uh, this is, it's a real topic that, that we really need to uh, learn to talk about. And how do we engage in the public forum? I remember a few years ago, our local paper, the Hamilton Spectator, was doing stuff on this, and they called me and said, you know, could you give us a quote? And I said, I can't. I said, one, because you'll, you'll tear it apart. So I said, here's the only way I'll do it, is if I can write it, it's unedited, and I need a full page. And they said, how big? I said, a full, I need a full page unedited. And they said, we can't do that. I said, and I can't do the other. Um, um, but how do we engage the public forum, education system? How do we engage politicians? friends at work, colleagues are there, how do we begin to engage as, as Christians um, when the culture has shifted so far so quickly um, on this subject when it comes up in an appropriate Christ-honoring way that is full of grace and truth? This is a special interest of mine, not that I have special expertise, maybe in my soon-to-be retirement I'll spend more time working on this, but it seems to me we should, we should do whatever we can try to reshape the public rhetoric that so often assumes, Sam alluded to it this morning, if we express serious disagreement with one another, that means we hate each other. Somehow, we need to be able, able to call people back to the fact to disagree is not to hate. To, for, I mean, the, the person who says to me, well, and I've had this happen, well, you're the one who's sinning here because Jesus said, do not judge, and you're judging me. Well, he was judging me for my judgmentalism. So we're, we're all in this together. So, so can, we begin, can we begin to call people back to recognize we can disagree without being hateful? Um, and, and what I have tried to argue with letters to the editor in newspapers and other ways, at least, is for a principled pluralism that says, yes, let's admit the reality. We, we are a diverse population. Our prime minister is constantly saying diversity is our strength, except he doesn't tolerate some of us so easily. And so we need to say, you know, it's about an openness and civility toward people on all sides of these questions, including some of us traditionalist types. I wrote a, a couple of years back, wrote a letter to the editor um, in our Waterloo Region daily newspaper about the un new Ontario sex ed curriculum. And, and they printed it as a major letter of the day. And out of that, I had a phone conversation with one of the columnists. 
And, and I said to her, look, I, what I'm appealing for is that people recognize that the sex ed curriculum has an, has an agenda about values which is contrary to the values of many families in Ontario. And that needs to be respected. And we need to treat each other with respect and civility in all directions. And she said, I quite agree. She said, look, I'm, I'm a progressive secularist, but we're on the same page here. We have to find a way to live together peacefully and discuss these things rather than assume that we hate each other. So I, I, there's no easy way to achieve it, but hopefully we can keep energizing conversations like that. And then when we do have those opportunities to do that, whether it's, it's written, whether it's, it's face-to-face, I mean, tone is so important. Um, and, you know, the more we can do the personal over the, especially the Facebook and that, those types of posts, you know, the little things where it's so easily misconstrued, and the more that we can enter into a dialogue where we are very conscious of our tone in, in doing that, I think that's really, really important. Sam, you do this. You, you speak in this in public forums. Some thoughts? I just echo everything that's just been said. Okay. Yeah, we, we must do this in a very different way to how our culture is doing it. Mm -hmm. um, it's, we've, we've been given consistently bad models of disagreement in the political world mm. and in the ethical world. And we, just, we need to show that we can take contrary positions with civility and respect. Stan, Sam, Conan, thank you. Really appreciate it. Can we give them a hand? Thank them for being part of this. <laughs>